Hold on one sec. Yeah? Yeah, I'm recording. Okay. Okay. The, um, the kitchen is all clean. The baby's asleep. The wife is doing yoga upstairs. I think we're good. Are you recording, Shale? Yes, I am recording. Hey, I can see you for the first time. Hey, nice to see you. I guess this pandemic brought us together in new and unique ways. I know. It's it, everything is everything's on video conference now, including our podcast. Amazing. What do you think of my studio bunker? Terrifying. Terrifying. You have your for <laughs> listeners which <laughs> who cannot see where Steven does apparently all of his work. It looks like let me just describe it for you and you can tell me if I've got this right or not. You look like you're in a room the size of a large coffin <laughs> in in which you've placed um presumably like sound dampening black some kind of black material uh but you've like there's acoustic foam okay acoustic foam which you've blanketed the entire room with except for this back wall behind me that where it looks like you've placed like a uh dark like cape hanging from the door yeah that is a a blanket because there's a whole nother closet behind me yeah by the way it doesn't look like you have any furniture in your room do you own furniture? I, I do own. I, have, I own plenty of furniture, Stephen. It's just this room is just so cavernous you can't see it in the in the far reaches. <laughs> well, like many of you, we are here in our homes, partially frozen in time, wondering how long we're going to be here. How long are things going to be this way? How are we going to work? How are we going to? keep healthy? How are we going to keep our families safe? How are we going to run our companies? How are we going to come back from this? And frankly, with each day, it feels like those answers are only further away. And so Shale and I are here trying to figure out what this means for us, like all of us, and what that means for how we talk about the energy business on this show too. So it felt more appropriate for this episode to tap into the way we're all feeling the way we're all communicating right now, to ride the unease and the uncertainty and the collective experiences and think through, where do we go from here? I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm Shell Khan. And this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. First, some words from the supporters of our show. We're brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Viking Cold has a thermal energy storage system that can store and discharge up to one megawatt for up to 13 hours per day per industrial facility, plus improve efficiency by an average of 25%. Storing cold inside critical food supply infrastructure also provides three times longer resiliency during planned or unplanned power outages. So to see the benefits to the grid, the food industry, and the environment, go to vikingcold.com grid. We're also brought to you by Next Tracker. Next Tracker is the world's leading solar tracking solutions company. It works with customers to advance the connected power plant of the future with smart trackers, energy storage systems, and the True Capture Advanced Control software. Find out how to make your solar more valuable at nexttracker.com. All right, so how are you doing, Shale? Like like not the how are you doing, let's intro the show kind of how are you doing, but like how are you really doing? Um it's sort of mixed, you know, I, I feel, um, extremely constantly, extraordinarily fortunate personally in that, uh, I am safe and healthy and we are well stocked and my family is healthy and we have a place to shelter in place and, um, all of that. So, you know, from a personal standpoint, I'm totally fine. Um, from a global standpoint, uh, it's scary. It's also very eerie um, for me. Like I keep thinking about the fact that like there's, so in my lifetime, this is really the the third time that I've ever been in a moment, like an extended moment where I'm confident, like a hundred percent sure that 50 years from now, I will remember this and we will all talk about this. Right. And it's very weird. The other times for me being nine 11 and maybe like the depths of the 2008 crisis, like right as, Bear Stearns was going down, that kind of moment. But um, 9-11 took longer. The 2008 one, it was a brief sort of period that was so quite as um, stark as this. This is a really extended one. It's just, I find it very 
uh, it's like everything is slightly out of place. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it exactly, but it's like a very strange feeling to kind of float through days this way. Yeah, I, I share that. Um, I have had a sense of anxiety for some time. Before I get to how I'm feeling, I have to ask you, you can tell a lot about a person by how long they've been sheltered for. So what day is this for you? Well, let's see. I mean, I had been... So I, I, I a lot of our listeners know this. So I, I live in Berkeley. I work in San Francisco. Um, and I, until very recently, traveled a lot. And so I, I had not been traveling for a few weeks already. I had been going into the office in San Francisco at least a few days a week. I had even prior to California shelter in place order, I had cut back and basically said, okay, if there's an in-person meeting that's important, I will still go in. Otherwise I'm working from home. And that lasted basically up until California issued the shelter in place order, which was last Monday. So I'm, you know, day eight or so of fully sheltered in place. Yeah, so I've had a sense of deep anxiety for some time. Uh, the 26th of February was when we ordered 90 days of medication for our dog. We ordered uh, a few months of food for our dog and our baby. We were like ready to go at the end of February. And it was very strange to be that far ahead of where people in the United States were. And only up until the last three or four days did we start to see the parks clear out, the jungle gyms not being used, the basketball courts not filled, uh, the streets not bustling. And it was so bizarre to be that far ahead of where the country was. And I think I've had to grapple with that disconnect. That was very hard. And now I just have this sense of like deep depression that we're so far behind the curve. That's really where my anxiety comes from. Well, having known you for years, it doesn't surprise me that you were ahead of the curve. Uh, I think you've always had a, like a, a little bit of a of a prepper in you. Um, you also come from New Hampshire, which I feel like that's like the state's whole motto is <laughs> like, I bet you that I, here's a bet for you. I bet you that if you were to, if there was some metric of preparedness for pandemic or just preparedness for disaster um, by state that New Hampshire would be near, if not at the top of that list. Do you agree with that? I'm actually not sure. I think it's a lot of like Western states like Idaho and Montana. I don't know oh, if New that's Hampshire's up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think Idaho right. has the largest number of per capita preppers. They've been ready for this for a long time. Right. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm not surprised that you're ahead of the curve. Uh, and my wife, I mean, <laughs> to her credit, she also has a bit of the prepper streak in her. And so we're, we're well stocked better than certainly we would have been if it had just been me. So credit goes to her for uh, keeping us all well appointed and well fed. But yeah, I mean, it's um, the, the news is moving so fast again, since the, in this case, since 2008, it's the last time I could think of that, um, that the news was so different day to day. There's no such thing as a news cycle anymore. This is like one of the things I've been thinking about, you know, usually in normal times, um, some big event captures the the national or international attention, depending on the event. And then there's this like very predictable news cycle that lasts, depending on the event, a couple of days to maybe a week. That's like gone. We're all in this sus suspended animation. We're all paying attention to the same thing. And we're going to only be basically paying attention to this one thing for a while. Um, so anyway, it's uh, we're living through a, a, you know, incredibly depressing um but also like unique and super complex time, um, which makes the types of things that we talk about here and that, you know, I, I work on, um, you know, it introduces a new layer to literally every conversation you could have. Yeah. There's, there's no conversation in which COVID does not permeate. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that we are going to try to think through on this show and in future shows, because I don't think we can really have conventional shows anymore. I mean, we're talking about something, an economic crisis and a public health crisis that could last for many months. It has completely frozen the way that companies operate. It has changed the politics and our economic future in such fundamental ways that our previous ways of thinking, our episodes from just a few weeks ago feel 
so different, like they're from another era. And and that's one of the things that we are going to attempt to do with this conversation and future conversations to understand and process that new world, because it certainly brings more unanswered questions than, you know, we know what to do with. And so we hope to do that alongside each other and the rest of you. Yeah, I I do think that, I mean, at first, we, you and I were going through this and we were trying to figure out what to do this week, right? But my, my first reaction was somewhat overwhelmed. It's like, how can you even think about the future? How can you think about or even, you know, our, our job as I think about it is to try to dissect complex issues in the energy transition and explain them comprehensively and, and um, intelligibly for people. Uh, how can you even think about doing that in the depths of coronavirus as we are right now? So at first I felt sort of overwhelmed about that. And then you actually kind of turned me around um, to a mindset that is more, no, wait a minute. Like we just need to revisit everything that we talk about, everything, right? Um, Every topic we've ever covered, everything that is uh, a part of this transition, every company, um, everything is now affected by this new vector which is, you know, some combination of the virus itself, the impact of the virus on our day-to-day lives today, and then the long-term question of what does this do to the economy and what comes out of it and all that. And so I think what we need to spend most of our time doing for a while is asking that question through a variety of different prisms. Yeah. So let me ask you, you're in venture capital, You your job is to go visit the companies that you're investing in or, or thinking about investing in. Um, I mean, that's primarily what you do and, and then figure out what the market looks like to make investments work, right? Like to make the right plays for your portfolio. And now like all that is out the window. So let's just think about the closest thing to home, what you do as a venture capitalist. Has this completely rearranged like the way you think about how to assess the market and how the your portfolio companies operate? Yeah, um, it has for sure. I mean, the easier part, right, is just switching anything that was going to be in person to being on Zoom. That's everybody's doing that in every sector, including venture capital. Um, the reality of your a venture capital fund, as as we are at Energy Impact Partners, is you're you're sort of operating with um, three different groups of constituents primarily. The first group is your investors in your fund. In our case, that's primarily utility companies. Um, In the second group is your portfolio, right? So this is all the companies you've already invested in, whom you are supporting, and many of whom you'll be on the board of, and um, who you want to see succeed. And for us, that's somewhere in the range of 30 companies. And then the third group of constituents is um, the wide world of startups into which you have not invested, but that where you're looking for gems um, that you can find and invest in and then support. And, you know, I think the, the current reality for anybody in this sector is that all three of those groups are going to be affected differently. And uh, what you're sort of trying to calibrate on any given day is um, how do you adapt through each of them? So, You know, if you're, this is not the case with us, fortunately, but many venture capital funds are, you know, we're about to go raise a new fund. Do your investors still have money? Um, And do they still want to invest with you? Open question, right? So some venture capital funds maybe won't be able to raise the next fund. Um, Your portfolio is the one that you're spending the most of your time on right now. Because if you have, in our case, 30 companies, every single one of those companies is going to be impacted um, to some degree. Right. And so you're trying to figure out what is the best strategy for them. You're working with them on how to address this. So every bit of uncertainty there is in the in the global universe is seen through the lens of a bunch of different startups all at once who are operating in different subsectors. And some of them are consumer businesses. Some of them are, you know, business to business. They're like all over the place. So you're seeing a million different iterations of this. Um, so you're spending most of your time just trying to work with your portfolio to make sure that they get through this okay. And then, you know, you have this third question, which is, um, if you still do have um, funds available to invest, then are, are you still investing in new companies? Um, do you change your criteria? Do you change your valuation expectations? Uh, how do you address the modern environment? And so we, as everybody, are basically running through all those things simultaneously. Okay, so I have my feet in both worlds. One is the energy and climate world, 
And then the other is in like the podcast world where I have a business. And I can tell you that people are freaked out in both. My financial stake is directly tied in the audio world and everything's frozen, right? I mean, the world has been completely upended. Nobody's doing studio time anymore. You can't get tape sinkers. Projects are on hold. And for me personally, I can say that it's like a very scary time. And I think a lot of folks have been talking about this podcast bubble, like what will happen if advertisers start pulling out because the audiences aren't there? What happens if, you know, there are just too many shows? And I think right now what you're seeing is people are not listening as much, even though they're stuck at home, their commutes and their gym time takes up a lot of podcast listening. And the advertising revenue probably won't be there in a few months. And so that's kind of a scary time. And I've also been talking to people on the energy clean tech side, and there's sort of like, at first it was just this shockwave, right? Everyone's just like, I, I have no idea what's happening. And now I think it's starting to turn to dread because in the last week, we're, we're hearing from public health officials and economists that we need to shut down the economy for m potentially many months and that public health officials say that we shouldn't expect any drastic change for 9, 12, even 18 months. And that is like... That is causing such existential dread from, you know, many of the folks that I've been talking to that run companies in both of those worlds. That's where my head is at. And I, I think that, that the sort of fear of the unknown is turning into sincere dread. Yeah, I think from a business perspective, um, uncertainty is the killer right now. I mean, it's notoriously the killer in general. It's why like everybody always argues when they're trying to get bills passed and regulations changed and things like that, that you need long-term certainty because uncertainty kills, kills businesses. And the problem is right now that um, we just have so little certainty around the length of this shutdown, right? Uh, it could be 24 months, like you said. Uh, you know, It could be if the president has its way, then things start opening up at Easter again. Um, and it could be anything in between. And so it's just really, really hard to plan around that. If it if it helps any, um, I mean, you're, you're obviously not alone. You know, one of the interesting things about being in the world of venture capital, which I'm in now, um, is that so, you know, you have a bunch of different portfolio companies. In our case, at Energy Impact Partners, we have, I think, close to 30 portfolio companies. And so what's happening in a moment like this is that you're um, working with every single one of those companies, trying to figure out what the right approach is, given their business, given how much cash they have in the bank, given their, you know, prior success, given the sector that they're in, um, what are they all supposed to do? And, you know, it's n nobody's unaffected, obviously, everybody's affected to different degrees. One of the bigger challenges, I think, is that notoriously, there's this like, there's a wealth of information and data all of which pointing to the fact that when a massive shock to the economy comes and you recognize it early on, the best thing to do is take early decisive action. Um, and that'll be different what that action is for different companies. Oftentimes it means cutting costs in some form or another. Um, but, you know, making tough decisions early. And that's tough. It's really hard to do. And it's especially hard to do because, you know, the the a lot of the theory suggests that you're supposed to make you're supposed to make big dramatic change if you need to do so right away, like pull off the band aid, um, and then you'll be stronger for it in the long term. That's easy to say, but then in the reality of a situation like this, where there is so such a wide delta in the possible end dates to the just this immediate shock, let alone the long term economic ramifications really, really difficult to figure out what to actually do. Like, do you plan as if everything is shut down for a year? Do you plan as if everything opens back up in three months? Do you stage gate it? Do you do it based on triggers? Like, it's just a, it's a whole new set of challenges that are um, really complicated. And on top of that, you have all these anxieties around your chapped hands because you're washing your hands so much. I can see your your bloody chapped hands on the Zoom call. You have to figure <laughs> out whether or not you're going to cut your own hair. Your beard is getting kind of long there. Um, you're making vats of your own personal hand sanitizer in your bathtub. You don't know where to take a bath anymore. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so uh, I want to talk through some 
questions that are very directly related to the topics that we normally cover. Before we do that, just a quick word about our supporters of the show. We're brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Viking Cold Solutions makes long-duration storage with the added benefits of efficiency and resiliency, and that is thermal storage. Commercial industrial installations store and discharge up to one megawatt for up to 13 hours per day in a single facility, plus improve efficiency by an average of 25%. Thermal energy storage provides new demand management flexibility to electricity suppliers with a levelized cost of energy less than two cents a kilowatt hour. Learn more about how thermal energy storage is benefiting the grid, the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com grid. We're also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is a global leader in intelligent solar tracker systems, software, and services. During the time it takes to listen to this show, NextTracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems in power plants around the globe. And that data helps customers manage the health and well-being of their solar and storage assets. Plus, they provide solar power plant operators with a valuable tool to protect their assets during hailstorms, hurricanes, heavy snow, and other extreme weather events. Find out more at nexttracker.com. Okay, let's uh, talk numbers for a second. As you're reading through the news obsessively, pouring through reports, listening to public health officials, talking to your portfolio companies, is there a number that has come up for you that you think tells a bigger story of what is happening right now or raises questions that you want to answer? Yeah. So a number that I think is extraordinarily important, given what is happening day to day right now, is the number. The, it's, a, it's an indicator that will change moment to moment. The current number as of this moment of taping is about 1.4%. That is the yield on the 30-year treasury. Um, U.S. Treasury bond, so that's the the T bill rate. One point four percent is it's it's a little higher than its historic low, but its historic low was like weeks ago when it's briefly dipped below one percent. And so, why should we care? Uh, it's extraordinarily cheap for the U.S. government to borrow. If you account for inflation, likely inflation over the next thirty years, it basically means there's a negative real interest rate um, for the government to borrow money, which effectively means the government can borrow money for free or potentially even get paid to borrow money. If you want to say it's really negative. And which means other people can borrow money for very cheaply or free. It does mean that, but in this context, um, why I think that's important is that we are almost certainly going to have a series of stimulus bills, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're, we have this first one that is in the late st- as we record right now in the late stages of negotiation. Probably by the time we release it, we'll have a bill. But there's probably going to be a couple more on the back end of that. It's so so cheap for the government to borrow money to spend on things like infrastructure, and so there's a real opportunity. I mean, this is by the way, this is much lower than it was the thirty year Treasury is much lower than it was even during the two thousand eight recession. So it's like historically low for the U S government to to borrow money, um, which makes it really cheap at least relatively speaking, to borrow money to fund stuff like grid infrastructure, EV charging, transit, uh, building electrification, port electrification to fund whatever, right? Like anything you might want to do um, that is infrastructure and supports the energy transition. It's really cheap to do right now. Okay. That's that's actually a really nice lead in to my number. And my number is 70%. And it's very directly related to what you are talking about. Can you guess what the 70% number is? Uh, 70% of new electricity generation is renewable? No, it's actually directly tied to government spending in the way that you just identified it. Turns out that according to the International Energy Agency, governments directly or indirectly drive 70% of global energy investments, either through tax credits, through fuel subsidies. There's all sorts of ways that uh, governments directly support uh, energy technologies. And so with that background number, we think through the importance of government investments in low carbon technologies. And it's why everyone is now focused on this next stage of the economic recovery and thinking about how to get clean energy technologies in those packages as much as possible. So IEA is thinking about that. A lot of leaders are thinking about that. And that is, you know, if it's very cheap for the government to borrow money and build out this infrastructure, 
then they're definitely going to be focused on energy in some way. Probably. I mean, I will note that, you know, that one thing, I think there will be a focus in the near term, certainly in the first stimulus, quote unquote, stimulus bill on things that have a, an immediate impact, right? Because the first thing we're trying to do is basically stop the bleeding on the economy that is happening day to day right now as, you know, the basically the entire service economy is shut down. Um, and so much as I'm all for infrastructure spending, it doesn't solve that problem necessarily. Definitely. Right? So, I mean, you, need to, you need to send cash to people. You need to, you need targeted spending to right. help low income people to basically make it easier for people to stay at home because they know they're going to be supported. Yeah. So, so that's why I think what ends up happening here is that you have a series of, um, of recovery actions and, you know, the infrastructure type spending probably gets put in the later stages here, not in the initial stages. Nonetheless, to the extent that that happens, it is a big opportunity. And it obviously, that that was a huge deal in the last cycle, right? The One of the biggest results in our sector out of the 2008 recession and the stimulus package that came afterwards um, was a whole bunch of different things. You had extension of renewable tax credits. You had temporary, the 1603 program, which allowed you to um, basically get a cash refund on a tax credit for a solar investment. That was important because all the tax equity, the the folks who were supposed to invest in projects using their tax capacity suddenly didn't have any tax capacity because they weren't profitable. So that kept the solar industry afloat. The stimulus package resulted in loan guarantee program, which financed a bunch of um, manufacturing and a bunch of initial really large generation assets. We got a massive smart meter rollout out of the program. So, you know, that last time ended up being one of the most important outcomes of the recession um, from an energy perspective, it easily could again, but there's no guarantee. So both of us are clearly tapping into a conversation that is emerging around how to get clean energy into the stimulus. That is very much at top of mind for a lot of people. Can I just say one other thing? It's only sort of related in the meantime, but I was reminded of it. You you actually put a call out on on Twitter saying that we were doing this episode, just like trying to work through all the you know, questions that we're all facing right now. We had a bunch of good responses, but one of them was from um, our mutual friend, Alicia Barton, who's the CEO of NYSERDA in New York. And Alicia pointed out something that I think is important, which is the energy industry is part of critical infrastructure. You'll notice that we're all at home, sheltered in place, um, and the lights are still on. And, you know, among the People who are doing, I think, really fantastic work right now, obviously doctors and, you know, many other folks as well. Um, among those who get less attention, I think, are utility workers um, who are, you know, doing their job to make sure that we still have power during this whole crisis and um, are facing all the same risks that everybody else is. Many of them have to wear personal protective equipment. There's some possibilities. You've read some um, stories of the possibility of, of some utility workers having to isolate and separate from their families in order to keep critical infrastructure alive. Like, you know, the backbone of our modern economy is this combination of like energy and communications. So while we're all very excited about Zoom continuing to work for everybody during this whole thing, like let's make sure we're also paying attention to the fact that the uh, the infrastructure that powers Zoom, which is the power grid, also works and that that's run by people. Yeah, it's a really important point. And one thing that I have seen online as this crisis has unfolded is a discourse around kind of unseen workers that has broken through and and, and crossed over traditional political lines uh, when we talk about class. And I think people are realizing that there are all these frontline workers, like healthcare workers, like utility workers, all sorts of city workers who are collecting your garbage and doing stuff that like doesn't stop, postal workers. And we very rarely think about how valuable the services that they provide are. And all of a sudden, we're collectively realizing that these are the people on the front lines to keep society moving while the rest of us hunker down. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, to the extent that there's any little silver lining to this whole thing, there are some really beautiful um, like glimmers of humanity that are emerging in in spots, and I think that's one of them. Let's go back to a theme now that we touched on at the beginning of the show, which is the unanswered questions that may not be answered for some time as we're thinking through 
the way we want to talk about these issues and the way we want to cover them and the way that our jobs, frankly, will unfold. So is there an unanswered question about the long-term outcome of this crisis that you really want to dig into and answer yourself? I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer this myself until we see the answer, but um, <laughs> a debate a debate that I've been having a lot with friends and family, family in person, friends over Zoom, um, is whether and the extent to which once this is all over, once we've fully defeated COVID, the extent to which that our behavior will forever be changed. Um, and that applies in lots of general ways, right? Like people wonder whether we're going to be somewhat social distancing forever, will we wash our hands more forever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the ones that are, you know, most relevant to the, for example, climate world, will we fly less, right? Will we have more virtual conferences, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Will more people work from home so there's less transportation uh, to and from the office, less congestion on the roads, less air pollution, et cetera. Like, will this, will the behavior snap back to normal or will we be forever changed from a behavioral perspective? I think this is the fundamental question. And I, to be honest, I am definitely a cynic. Like if we think very big picture, will this get us thinking about existential crises like climate change? I don't think so. I, I think that the limits on the human brain make it very difficult for us to imagine crises unfolding even when they're in front of our faces can, can i separate that question out though sure. I, mean, I think that's also and there, there's a separate set of questions being asked in the climate universe which is once we're out the other side of this will we be more focused on climate change because now we understand global calamity or something like that or less focused on climate change because we're only going to see what's immediately in front of us I, that's a separate question to me I'm saying independent of worries about climate, will our behavior just naturally have changed in a manner that mitigates carbon emissions just by virtue of us doing less of the things that emit? Yeah. Okay. So let's take one, uh, teleworking. You know, we're all, m many of us who are lucky enough to uh, have some kind of white collar job are, are able to do remote calls and, and communicate with one another and get a lot of our jobs done at home. You know, I've personally been working from home for a decade. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. And I've been fortunate enough that the tools have gotten really good to do that. Now, I saw a bunch of data on the future of teleworking. And it comes from uh, this expert named Kate Lister, who wrote this piece on telework in the 21st century. And, um, you know, right now, about 3.6% uh, of the workforce is currently working at home half time or more. And that has shot up uh, dramatically since this crisis. I think well over half of American workers are now working at home. And uh, she, what she points out is 56% of employees have a job where they could at least do uh, some of it remotely. And so the question is, now that companies have figured out that their workers, they can trust their workers after this, that people are getting their work done, will they allow that to happen? And if well over half of uh, workers in this country are, are able to do their jobs from home, that could dramatically shift commute times, the number of people who are commuting, and have some kind of an impact on transportation emissions, which of course are the biggest source of carbon emissions in this country now. So all that is to say, yes, I think that those behavioral shifts could ultimately have an impact. Yeah, it's possible. Um, though I will say the skeptic in me thinks it could be quite the reverse, actually, which is like- Oh, how so? It's well, it's like easy to say that, you know, we're all going to be working from home. Oh, many of us will be working from home for a month and we'll discover it's possible. And then, you know, we'll be able to go back into the office and suddenly we'll, we won't feel the need or our employer will um, allow us to do it. I think it's just as likely that um, most people who are stuck in their homes for a month, you know, especially people who have kids or like, you know, it's not a home situation that isn't super conducive to it. Like they're going to want, they're going to want to get out as fast as possible. They're going to discover that this is actually a super counterproductive way to live. And so, you know, it's going to make them even less likely to want to do it permanently. Um, I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to get confident that, 
that this manner of trial by fire sticks. Well, you never know. I mean, these crises just can transform the economy over a period of years in ways that we didn't foresee. Um, I, I, I think there's a real crisis of affordability in this country, right? And and even folks who are making pretty decent salaries, who have kids who live in the city, are not able to afford their lifestyles at all. And so this will probably cause a lot of people to reevaluate whether or not they even need to be working in cities. And I suspect there will be some meaningful shift of people moving to rural environments because they can work from home or work from some co-working space or do it outside of the office. And uh, we certainly saw this movement after like the Tim, Tim Ferriss four hour work week uh, craze took off, you know, 12, uh, 13 years ago. We have seen statistically the number of people going and doing remote work uh, change. And, and and I think that we will probably see something similar and that may end up being people working, you know, remotely or working somewhere around the world if they don't have kids. Um, I, I have a feeling that this will accelerate. Maybe. I guess the other way I'd put it is that I'm skeptical that among the many factors that will dictate the future of transportation emissions, that more people working from home will be significant over the next say, decade, right? There's like too many other things that are going to have a bigger difference. Okay, well, my question is about whether this economic crisis is going to be a net negative or net positive for startups, meaning financial crises are often a really good time to start companies or to see companies thrive. In normal financial crises, for example, uh, where you have some like, asset bubble or you know there's a particular part of the economy that collapses you have startups that have raised money and perhaps they fail because you know they were able to raise money during good times and then during the bad times like it's pretty obvious that they're not going to make it and so you separate these companies and the companies that are doing well can more easily rise to the top when things get better and they can do creative things with limited money. And so it can very often be a net positive for all sorts of new companies. This financial crisis, this economic collapse, of course, is very different because we are just trying to pause as much economic economic activity as possible. And, you know, otherwise healthy companies are just going to get crushed and certainly no one is going to be raising money for a while if they haven't already raised money. And so I think it's pretty clear that financial crises generally can be good for startups or for competition. And this one is so different. I don't know that we can say that. I, th- <laughs> I think every recession is bad for startups. Yeah. You know, I think some it is it is true that like many great startups have been founded in the depths of recessions. That is that's been true historically, probably will be true again this time. I th- I think any one of those companies would still take no recession over recession, right? It doesn't create that many new opportunities. Um, it's just been true that, you know, even in the depths of it, some really amazing innovation has happened. And sometimes, you know, the result is like, if you found a company or you start a company at the bottom, then you ride the wave back up. Right. And that's certainly what happened in, in the last recession, 2008, a bunch of companies were founded right around then or before then, and were able to survive through it. And then the economy has been on this like very extended um, positive trend for years since then. So they've benefited that, but like, it's, it's hard to make the case that it, it would be a net positive for anybody really, unless it's like Slack or zoom, but not Skype, but not Skype. I mean, there are some other, probably some other areas that, um, where this event can catalyze or accelerate a trend that was already underway. So like the obvious example would be the transition to the cloud, where all of a sudden, you know, stuff that was on premise that was like in a server in a back room in somebody's office, like nobody's going into the office. So you need access to that stuff from home, which means it needs to be in the cloud. Um, and so there's an argument that any of these, all these like cloud companies and um, cloud data companies will actually benefit. So there's definitely like sectors that it could be helpful for, but it, you know, just as a whole, it, it's got to be a net negative, not a net positive. But it sounds like you agree that 
these kinds of crises that emerge from like a specific sector of the economy can be good. Do you agree that this one is very different? Like this could be much worse than any other financial crisis we've we faced. I just don't think we know. It's possible. Yeah, yeah maybe. Um, maybe not, right? Like I've been doing all this reading on the shapes of recession recoveries. And, you know, there's a there's a V-shape. That's the that's what you want, right? The fast and rapid um, recovery. There's the U-shape, which is like a, a, a long, slow period followed by a rapid recovery. There's the L-shape, which is kind of what the 2008 recession was, which is a steep decline followed by a long, slow um, recovery that continues on. There's the W-shape. That's the double-dip recession. And... Uh, who knows which one the sun's going to be? It could be none of those shapes, right? We could be inventing a new shape. This is a totally unprecedented situation. All right. So I presume you're doing a lot of market research and reading the news and hopefully doing some pleasure reading. Is there any piece of writing that has grabbed you right now, um, preferably on a topic that intersects with our area of, of coverage? Well, um, It's not necessarily a piece of writing, and it doesn't intersect directly, though I've been thinking about it in the context of our specialty, which is, so Nate Silver, the founder of 538, um, has apparently gotten bored of presidential politics for the time being and decided to like dedicate his mental capacity to coronavirus as everybody else has. And so he started, you can like watch this happening in real time on Twitter. He's and, and articles that he writes and stuff like that. He's just like, you can see him getting more and more into the data and then starting to develop opinions. And so he's no epidemiologist, but he is, um, adept with data. And one of the points that he's been making a lot lately, which, uh, I think is important to understand in general, in the coronavirus world, but I also think applies to thinking about the future of energy in a post-coronavirus world, is that some of the indicators, some of the the statistics that we hear the most are actually backward-looking indicators. So for example, the number of new cases of coronavirus, right? This is like getting reported, that number is being reported daily and obsessed over. And I think a lot of the coverage of it and the understanding of the general public doesn't necessarily fully capture the fact that a new case today is a case that was diagnosed today. Um, The likelihood is that the transmission that led to that case being diagnosed today was maybe two weeks ago, right? Because you're asymptomatic for a time, then you get sick, then you have to get tested, the test has to be returned. So what we're seeing today is what happened two weeks ago which means that we could be doing absolutely the right things today um, to bend the curve, and we're still not going to see it actually bend for another two weeks from today. And so there's this like time frame issue. And I- I've been thinking about that in terms of what the hell is going to happen in energy, because I think we need to also be careful to look at forward-looking indicators, not backward-looking indicators in order to try to predict the future. So I've been trying to figure out like what are the actual forward-looking indicators that are going to be important or that tell us, give us some kind of a signal about where the markets are heading. So I have a bunch of ideas and I solicited some other ideas from folks about what forward-looking indicators should be, but that's the piece of writing that has me thinking a lot, which is just like, let's be clear about um, any given number, what it reflects and whether that's history or future. So give me an example then, what would be a forward-looking indicator? So future futures pricing for electricity, there's lots of interesting dynamics in like summer forward electricity prices, um, forward gas, natural gas or oil prices, which is going to be relevant to um, where we think oil is heading. Interconnection queues are interesting to look at and what happens in interconnection queues over time. That gives you an indication of like earlier stage development of renewables or of storage. I think company announcements about spending um, and new JVs and new investments and stuff like that. Also forward-looking and and important, particularly with regard to the oil and gas super majors who are really taking a beating right now and have been a big source of the investment um, in renewables and clean energy as of late. But to be honest, I'm still still sort of grasping for what are the indicators that I can monitor day-to-day that are going to tell me some real story about what's going to happen in six months. Well, that's what we're going to do on this show going forward to try to find those forward-looking indicators and see if they tell us something that we didn't already know. 
Okay, so uh, <laughs> my favorite piece of writing is Nate Silver's tweets. Um, do you have a, a better example of a piece of writing that has captured your attention? So much. I will highlight one writer who has really captivated me, and that is um, this woman, Lori Garrett, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning science journalist. She's written a ton of books on infectious disease. She wrote a book on uh, 9-11, the aftermath of 9-11. She's done a lot of journalism uh, on, on the Ebola virus. She's really steeped in this topic. And very early on, she was writing articles in Foreign Policy magazine warning just how dire this crisis would become in the United States. And she has followed just how much the Trump administration has dismantled the pandemic response team and the government infrastructure that we need in place to be able to react to this kind of crisis. And there is a direct through line to the way that we're dismantling agencies that can do something about extreme weather and uh, climate science generally. But she has written very thoughtfully and forcefully on this. And I'll tell you that reading her and listening to interviews with her was what caused me in late February to go buy as many provisions as I could. And it turns out that all the predictions that she has made, all the warnings that she has issued have played out. And so I just highly recommend you go check out Lori Garrett. She's got a great Twitter feed and she writes extensively for this stuff for Foreign Policy Magazine. I mean, there's definitely a, um, th this whole thing has been a, a trust the experts lesson, right? Which could be applied to many different sectors, but has been true here, which I don't think she was alone, right? Epidemiologists were like saying this, saying this much earlier than it caught on in the general public. So it's been a good couple of months for experts. So the other piece that I really liked was from Somini Sagupta, who's an international climate correspondent for the New York Times. And early on in the crisis, it was probably a week and a half ago now, she wrote a piece about the lessons um, from the climate change fight that we can apply to coronavirus or vice versa. And she talks about government preparedness and human psychology. And the human psychology piece is something that those of us who focused on climate change for some time are very familiar with, and that is um, we always discount the future. Human beings are unable to think about long-term crises in a way that allows us to grapple with them. And, and, and climate change is like the perfect problem, uh, in, which is so hard for governments and individuals to uh, address. And pandemics and infectious disease crises are the exact same thing, but just in overdrive, right? It's just, it's happening much faster, but it's the same problem. International experts came together. They've come together for decades now and explained that mutated uh, viruses could completely upend the global economy and kill tens of millions of people. And it's only a matter of time and the infrastructure is not in place to do anything about it. And we of course, couldn't act. And the most sophisticated countries in the world with the best infrastructure and the best, pu best public health systems couldn't wrap their arms around this threat. And here we are. And so I think that there is a direct tie-in to how we think about climate change. They're just on different timescales. And she, this, th there's a lot of writing on this right now, but her piece, Samini Sagupta's piece, was a particularly good encapsulation. I go back and forth. I, I should read it. I haven't read that piece. Um, I've gone back and forth on, on how applicable I think it is. You know, it, it's, it's, it feels so, so distinct, right? That, you know, there is a, there are some common threads that you just mentioned. Um, and the sort of inherently global nature of both of these things is, is common, but boy, I, I just have a hard time imagining that any of the lessons that we will or won't or should take from coronavirus are, are super applicable to climate change. There will be a lot of ink spilled and a lot of tape reeled over this question. Mm -hmm. So how do you think we should cover this going forward? I mean, as you've thought through this, how do we do this? Well, I've been thinking a lot about, so in um, brief personal anecdote, I suppose. Uh, so I was living in Australia in sort of a good chunk of the last financial crisis. Um, and I felt, I felt sort of disconnected. I was literally on an island, <laughs> um, very, very far from America. And 
really wanted to understand what the hell was going on in my home country. It's going on around the world, but I, I don't know. I particularly wanted to understand what was going on in the U.S. And podcasts sort of became a lifeline for me in particular, Planet Money. This was like the NPR podcast that spun up around that time. And it was really, it was just there to like day to day, everybody was asking like, what the hell is going on? And trying to make sense of this really complicated thing. And it was, I can't tell you how valuable it was to me at the time. So I guess my hope is I think what's going to happen here right now and for a little while, we're basically only going to have questions. Like We don't have any answers yet, and we're not going to have any answers for a while. But as time goes on, um, some of those questions are going to start to see glimmers of answers. And so I think, at least for me, our job is to seek out those answers as they start to arrive. And in the meantime, ask all the right questions um, and just try to figure out how different folks in this sector, startups, investors, policymakers, anybody else, are, are approaching the questions. I completely agree. I mean, a month ago, if you had asked me how to cover this, I would have said, let's do one pandemic episode, maybe sprinkle them in. And now it's clear this is an enormous macroeconomic story that is the beginning of a generational shift in the way the economy is structured, the way that we do work, the way that we think about decarbonization, the way entire industries are structured. Um, so I want to sort through those to the best that we can with experts, with people who are running companies between the two of us. And so our mission stays the same to try to explain complicated topics, but certainly the focus uh, on topics has shifted. And I hope that we can do these subjects a service. I'm in. Let's do it. Well, that is it for this episode. Thanks for sticking with us for this extra long conversation. We definitely want to hear from you. So normal channels, Twitter is a great place to submit ideas. I actually sent out a tweet right before we recorded this show and we got some responses. So if you want to respond to that, please feel free to, to do that. And we'll certainly take those ideas into consideration as we go forward. You can find Interchange Show, me, Shale, and our senior editor, Ingrid Lobet, there on Twitter. So lots of ways to get ideas in front of us. You can email me at postscriptaudio at gmail.com as well if you want to send me an email. Um, we really appreciate you sticking with us. Hang in there, folks. We're trying to work through this in the best way we can. We know that you are all working through this yourselves. Be grateful for what you have. Try to harness that anxiety for good. And we will all do our best to work through this together. The Interchange is a weekly show focused on the global energy transformation, maybe the global energy disruption. It's hosted by me, Stephen Lacey, and Shale Khan. Uh, you can find more at greentechmedia.com. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you. Thanks very much for listening. We will catch you next week. Thank you.